It's my birthday this past week. I turned 48 years old this past week. And here's what, here's what happened. I went to get my emissions, you know, because you got to do that around your birthday. I went to get my emissions, and on the way home, this guy sideswiped me and totaled out my car. Number one. The next day, I'm getting uh, Max motorcycle into the because it's broken. This thing I bought at Christmas for him, and so it's broken. So I'm getting it in the van. I pull my back out. I can barely walk. The next day, Kathy and Natalie called me up. Said, "Sandy, you want to come eat uh, with the girls? Come eat lunch. We're at Red Lobster." I get to Red Lobster. This is no joke. I walk in. I sit down with them. About five minutes later, they get up. Leave me with the bill and leave. <laughs> 50 bucks to eat with the girls at Red Lobster for five minutes. And then the top, and I'm thinking, boy, this 48th year is really going great. And then to top it all off, I'm, I'm, I've been working my Bible study all night last night, and I'm leaving. Max got a hockey game, so I'm driving down Highway 78. And I'm almost to the hockey rink, and I look in the rearview mirror, and <laughs> blue lights flashing. And, and so the policeman pulls me over, and I said, well, you know, I'm in this rental car because my car was in a, I was in a wreck. I got totaled out earlier in the week, and he let me off with a warning. So things are looking up. <laughs> so I can't wait to see what happens this week. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. And you think you had a rough week. <coughs> a 1999 edition of World Magazine reported on Japan's attempts to save the endangered albatross. Hundreds of decoy albatrosses were placed on the Izu Islands. These wooden Decoys, these wooden albatrosses, were supposed to attract and lure the birds back to their native breeding grounds. But there was one albatross, a bird that was named Deco. He fell in love with one of the decoys. Over several months, this bird tried to woo the cutout decoy bird by building fancy nests and fighting off rival suitors. And Deco spent his days standing by the side of his beloved wooden albatross. A Japanese zoologist, Fumio Sato, commented on Deco's strange infatuation. He said, he seems to have no desire to date real birds. Some of you might be thinking, that's my problem. All I date are real birds. Or some of you might be thinking, that's my problem. I married a real bird. Evidently, Deco finds a wooden albatross more desirable than a live one. And this is how some folks feel about God. They would rather have a wooden God, a God of their own making, a God that they can control and manipulate, a God that won't talk back or make demands of them a God that caters to their carnality, a God that they can put on the mantle rather than a God who's on the move and expects them to follow. There are plenty of people who prefer to worship a wooden decoy. This has been man's problem from the earliest days. Whether it's an idol or an item or an ideal or an individual People tend to worship something or someone other than the one true God. And this is what God didn't want to happen among his people Israel. Exodus 34 verse 14 tells us, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He is not jealous of you, but he is certainly jealous for you he wants your love. He wants your allegiance. God hates to split loyalties. Anything that rivals your love for God, He considers an idol. The last verse in 1 John reads, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Amen. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13, God tells us how to keep ourselves from idols. Chapters 12 and 13 establish safeguards to protect His people then and now from idolatry. In chapter 12, He is going to centralize worship. Then in chapter 13, He warns them about false prophets. Before we get into tonight's chapters, remember that Deuteronomy is a collection of three sermons that were given by Moses to the generation that was entering the promised land. And tonight we start the second sermon. Chapters 1 through 11 constitute sermon number 1, a rehearsal of their history. The second sermon consists of chapters 12 through 26, a repetition of their laws. And then the final sermon, the third sermon, is found in chapters 27 through 30, a prediction of of their future. Chapter 12 begins. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Obviously, the Canaanites, the people that Israel were about to evict from the land, were a religious people. Their land was full of pagan temples and shrines and altars. You could find an altar under every green tree or on every hill. You see, Canaanite religion was decentralized. There were different gods for different locales. Every town had their own Baal or Baal. And they worshipped on their high place. Everywhere there was an elevation in the terrain, you could expect to find some altar to a pagan god. And thus you might think, wow, after the Israelites drive the pagans from the land, they won't have to build any temples. They won't need to build any altars. They'll have plenty to use. But that was not God's plan. For God orders the destruction of every pagan altar, every pagan shrine, this is not how he wants his people to worship him. God tells them in verse 5, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings. And what do you do with the heave offering? You heave it up to the Lord. Your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. In order to safeguard against idolatry, God's plan was to centralize the worship. He had one designated location for the people to come and worship Him. You see, today, everyone wants to decentralize. There's the local branch. There's the community outlet. In fact, you can even stay home and do business on the Internet. But when it comes to worship, God has always been into a centralized authority. If God had allowed the Israelites to worship on these sacred altars, these secular pagan altars, it wouldn't have taken long for their godless practices and their false notions to drift into their worship. This is why he wanted them coming to a central location, to the tabernacle, to offer their sacrifices. That way, he could make sure that he was not only worshipped, but he was worshipped in the right way. God had an appointed place for worship. He had appointed people to oversee the worship, the priests. And he had an appointed way to worship, the sacrifices. You see, nothing was left up to man's imagination. The worship of God was given to us by God. It all regulated worship. It restricted practices that could lead Israel away from God and into idolatry. With a central location, 
worship would be done right. Over the years, God chose six locations to set up a place of worship. After entering the promised land, the tabernacle was stationed first in Gilgal. You could write that down. Then it was moved later to Shechem, then to Shiloh, then to a place called Nob, then to Gibeon, and then finally the temple was built in Jerusalem. But there was always a central place of worship. A couple of weeks ago, I bought Kathy a Valentine's Day present. A new set of men's golf clubs. I even threw in a, pair, a new pair of golf shoes, size 12. And I'm sure you can imagine my wife jumping for joy over her new set of men's golf clubs. Not. When you buy your wife a Valentine's Day present, you buy her what she wants, not what you want. The same is true when it comes to worship. True worship offers God what He desires, not just what's convenient for you. This is why it is just as important how you worship God as that you do it. And by limiting Israel to one place for worship, God made sure that His people would be worshiping Him in the prescribed manner. And it's interesting, this remains God's strategy today. Yes, we no longer worship in a physical locale. We worship God in spirit and truth. But there is still only one place that you can go and truly expect to find God. And that is His Son, Jesus Christ. God in this day and age has put all His eggs in one basket. In a spiritual sense, Jesus is the only legitimate place that you can go and find God and worship Him. You see, God has given us limited options he has narrowed our choices. Today, the fixtures of Judaism have been replaced by faith in Jesus. Jesus is the appointed place. He is the appointed person or priest. And He is the appointed sacrifice. And this is why Jesus told His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In ancient Israel, if you wanted to worship the true God, you didn't waste your time looking under every green tree or on every hill. You came to one location. And likewise, if you want to find God today, don't waste your time looking anywhere other than Jesus Christ. And this is why Moses commanded the Hebrews to tear down these pagan altars. Verse 8, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Apparently there were different rules out in the wilderness. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and He gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And I love that. Notice it appears twice. Moses tells them, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. When we come together to worship God, we too need to rejoice. You know what that means. It means to take joy. We need to take our joy in Jesus. And what better place to do so than when we gather with his people to praise him. God wants us to be joyful. He wants us to approach him with a merry heart. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, All Christian duties should be doing, done joyfully, but especially the work of praising the Lord. I have been in congregations where the spirit of the people seemed so damp, so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed they had met for a hanging, rather than for blessing the ever-gracious God. I hope no one ever mistakes our worship for a hanging. We're here to rejoice. Well, the next few verses differentiate between slaughtering meat for food and slaughtering a sacrifice. You see, not every slab of meat was a sacrifice. Steaks 
could be eaten everywhere. I love verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. Hey, you be a vegetarian if you want to. But I'm holding on to this verse. I'm going to eat all the meat my heart desires. If anybody's interested in doing Outbacks tonight, just let me know after the service. Verses 21 through 28 explain what to do if you live too far from the tabernacle in bringing your sacrifice. And then verses 29 through 32 sum up the chapter. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. No, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Notice it's not just that we worship God, but it's that we worship Him in the right way. That's important. For every abomination to the Lord which He hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And he mentions here the passing of the sons and daughters through the fire. That was the worship of the false god Molech. Now in addition to serving our church as an elder, Larry Wilson also has another job. He judges the science projects for the students at Calvary Chapel Christian School. And last week, Larry told me about one child who had built a volcano Apparently, you know, it was a papier-mâché thing, and it was a snow-capped volcano. But it had this hot molten lava, you know, inside that would blow off through the top and, and bubble over the thing and all. And Larry asked the child what was his Bible verse, because apparently you had to have a theme. You had to have a Bible verse that was a theme of your project. And the little boy answered by quoting Matthew 7, verse 15, "'Beware of false prophets.'" Well, Larry kind of scratched his head, and he wondered what that verse had to do with a volcano. And that's when this little boy answered, False prophets are like volcanoes. They look pretty on the outside, but there's trouble brewing on the inside. (laughs) What a perceptive young man. I hope you gave him a good grade on his science project. False prophets are like volcanoes, and that's what Moses addresses in chapter 13. He says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. And notice that the false prophet's power might be real. Did you know that? Remember, not only did Moses throw down his rod and it turned into a snake, but the Pharaoh's magicians then in turn duplicated the same miracle. Satan has power too. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 refers to the future Antichrist as the lawless one who is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception. There is such a thing as a lying wonder. Just because a man does miracles doesn't mean he was sent by God. It's not the miracle that reveals the prophet's identity. It's his message. Moses teaches us to listen to the man's teaching. Verse 2, of which he spoke to you saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Hey, if the prophet invites you to serve any other god but the one true God, It doesn't matter if he turns Coca-Cola, water into Coca-Cola, or whether he multiplies Egg McMuffins. I don't care what miracle he might perform. He's of the devil. If he is telling you to go and follow any other God than the one true God, don't be impressed with his miracles until you look at his message. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul. You see, the false prophet can be our test. As a kid, I grew up watching Hollywood Squares. Remember that show? Stars and starlets would answer the questions, and, and some of their answers were true. Other of their answers were false, and the contestants had to judge among the stars whether they were offering the correct answer or if they were just bluffing an answer. And it was this supersized game of tic-tac-toe. Hey, life is a lot like Hollywood Squares. Success often comes by differentiating between the truth and a bluff. It's not that we're expected to know every nuance of doctrine, but all of us should be able to identify the spirit behind the prophet. Hey, I always marvel at people who embrace a preacher who's greedy or a preacher who's lustful or abusive or pompous. You embrace a guy like that, it's an indication that that's what you're attracted to. You see, it's an indictment against your own sensibilities. If you know Jesus, you'll recognize his spirit. It'll be one of servanthood and giving and gentleness and sacrifice and love and humility. And this is why the false prophet poses a test. What are you attracted to? Are you attracted to the wrong stuff? Are you attracted to the right stuff? The false prophet is a test of our own heart. Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall put away the evil from your midst. Spouting false doctrine was a capital offense in Israel. A deliberate deceiver was put to death. Cults and kooks were not allowed to set up shop. It was considered more serious to damn a man's soul than it was to kill his body. That's why they treated this so seriously. He says, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is, at your, own, who is your own soul secretly entices you. Notice this list here. Your wife, your kids, I mean your friend who, who's your own soul. We're talking about close, tight relationships. And yet, if they secretly entice you, we're not talking about the, you know, the crazy man standing on his soapbox on the edge of the street corner preaching false doctrine. We're talking about someone close to you. If they secretly entice you to follow another God. This is what Moses is talking about. He's concerned about <coughs> your wife lying next to you in bed, whispering in your ear, Oh honey, why are we being so narrow? Judy down the street, she takes a yoga class at the Temple of Baal to help her relax. Hey, they're starting some stress reduction classes next week. Why can't we take them too? You know, he's talking about the friend... The single friend who says to his single buddy, hey, hey, why don't we come on down to the dance they're hosting down at the temple of Ashtaroth? We can meet some cute Canaanite girls down there. Why don't, why don't we go and why don't we do that? It's the person who's secretly enticing, who's using that friendship in a fraudulent way to lead them astray. Moses warns about the one who secretly entices, not just the public heretic, He's concerned about the close friend who is saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him, to put him to death, and afterward the hand 
of all the people. You think Moses is serious about this? He's saying, have no pity on even a close family member. If your own mother defies the Lord or denies the truth or deceives other people, then it's your duty to expose her sin and be the first to call for her execution. Obviously, God takes false doctrine, unbiblical worship seriously. Apparently, God's truth supersedes family ties. I think some of us have yet to catch that. Loyalty ends when a parent pushes perversity. Our approach today to, heretical, to a heretical relative should be to love him, should be to try to convert him, it should be to certainly reach out to him, but it should never be to support his heresy. Love your family. But loyalty to God's truth is always more important than our love for our family. Truth is thicker than blood. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, I don't want anybody going home and stoning their mother tonight. <laughs> or shooting their next door neighbor or something like that. If you do that, don't say, you. I told you to. I'm not telling you to do that. Please understand that. Remember, in the Old Testament, God was building in Israel an earthly kingdom. Law governed behavior. The heretic was stamped out. But in the New Testament, God's kingdom is spiritual. In Jesus' kingdom, love governs behavior. And heresy is stamped out, but it's done so when the heretic is converted. The forgiveness of Jesus, the transformation of the Holy Spirit was unknown to Israel of old. But now in the wake of of the work of Christ, the evildoer is no longer stamped out. He's won over through the power of Jesus Christ. You see, today's approach differs from the Old Testament remedies, but our attitude toward false doctrine should be the same. We should have zero tolerance, even if it comes from our own parents, our own kids, our own wife, or people close to us. Verse 11. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. You know, people today deny that capital punishment is a deterrent. But that was never God's opinion. God says it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent for at least one person. In God's government, wickedness is curbed when it's punished, not tolerated. Verse 12. If you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. Here Moses is concerned about a whole city dedicating itself to some false god. If you hear about some city out in the deserts of Nevada that even calls itself Sin City, or if you hear about some city down on the bayou in Louisiana that, that makes a big deal in February about revelry and drunkenness and lewdness, Moses says, conduct an investigation, inquire, search out, ask diligently, and if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock, with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God, and it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again." It makes you wonder what in the world would happen to Las Vegas and New Orleans and San Francisco and Atlanta if we were living under the laws of ancient Israel. Cities dedicated to evil would be destroyed. 
Notice also here the word heap in verse 16. It's the Hebrew word tail or mound. And when you journey through Israel, you see these man-made hills or tails rising up from the terrain. These tails are ruins of ancient cities. There's Tel Dan, there's Tel Megiddo, there's Tel Aviv. They're all heaps of destroyed cities piled on top of each other. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your land that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you and multiply you, just as he swore to your fathers, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Chapter 14 begins. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, slashing your body, shaving your head were pagan customs that were employed to mourn a lost loved one. The idea was similar to serving a penance. You've heard that phrase? The idea was suffering in some way to improve your own or someone else's lot in the afterlife. In other words, if you can endure a torturous ordeal for God, well then God will have pity on either you or the person who's died. God says no to these practices. Understand, the only suffering that can atone for sin, the only suffering that can improve a person's lot in life or the afterlife is the suffering of Jesus Christ, not your suffering. Penance is of no value whatsoever. What is of value is repentance. And this is what we need to differentiate between penance and repentance. Penance believes that my suffering can atone for my sin, whereas repentance turns from my sin, and puts its trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us to repent, not do penance. Verses 3 through 21 once again rehearse the dietary laws of Israel. How to keep kosher, which means proper. And the kosher laws differentiated between clean and unclean animals, between edible and unedible animals, which reminds me of the Jewish rabbi and the Catholic priest. They were attending this picnic together. When a platter of baked ham passed right in front of the rabbi, well, he politely declined. The priest saw it, and that's when he jumped in, and he asked, Come on, what are you doing declining that delicious ham when are you going to get with it, man? When are you going to forget those silly Jewish rules and eat ham like the rest of us? And that's when the rabbi replied, I will at your wedding. <laughs> silly rules. Well, four kids later, I obviously don't believe that pastors need to be celibate. And if you ate lunch with me, you would realize that I have no aversion to ham and cheese sandwiches. Today, with modern methods of food preparation and with sanitary conditions, the health benefits of some of these kosher laws have now been minimized. But in Moses' day, these laws were crucial. They protected the Israelites medically and nutritionally. As a matter of fact, in the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague swept through Europe, the Jews were the only people who were unaffected. This is why the Gentiles accused them of poisoning their rivers and their streams. They couldn't figure it out. Why were the Jews not being affected by the plague? It was because their diet and their hygiene, these kosher laws, provided an immunization for them. Today, Israel has one of the longest average lifespans of any nation on the planet. And I believe it's partly because of their kosher laws. God was and still is an excellent dietitian. Well, Moses in these verses distinguishes between clean and unclean, between edible and inedible. Verse 3 gives us the overarching principle. 
You shall not eat any detestable thing. No detestable thing. And verse 4 begins to list what is not detestable. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer. Notice that, the deer. Is Low Porter in here? Tracy, is Low outside? Stick his head out there. We, we need to get, here he comes. You need to hear this, Low. It says here in verse 4 that you may eat the deer. Venison. I got to tell you, two weeks ago when I was out, when Kathy and I went out to do the marriage conference for Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, we went to church on Sunday morning to hear Pastor Chuck. And when it was over, I went back into his office and he and I were talking and I confirmed that he's going to come and speak at our pastor's conference in a, in a few months. And, and, and as I was about to leave, uh, Chuck kind of leans back in his chair and he kind of kicks his head back and he says, Sandy, your boy shot that meat that we like to eat down there at that pastor's conference? <laughs> and so lo, Pastor Chuck is expecting that venison this year at the pastor's conference. The pressure is on. We need some fresh venison. But lo, you got ways, man. I know. I know you got ways. Moses continues with the edible animals, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Split hooves and cud chewers were fair game. They were edible. They were kosher. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare. If there's a hare in your food, don't eat it. And not only should you not eat camels, you shouldn't smoke them either. And the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also the swine is unclean for you, because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh, nor touch their dead carcasses. And this is a huge reason that I am glad that I'm a Christian and that I'm not Jewish and that I've been delivered from the law because I love bacon and ham and sausage and pork barbecue. I am a pig-eating Gentile who's been saved by grace. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Verse 9 is the seafood menu. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. Catfish were unclean. They had fins, but they don't have scales. Shrimp, clams, lobsters were all unclean since they had no fins. So when you sit down at the shrimp lover's feast at Red Lobster, say a prayer and thank the Lord Jesus that you're saved by grace and free from the law and chow down, man. For Jesus' sake. Verse 11 deals with the poultry. All clean birds, and we have some pictures for some of this, so you might want to watch the screen. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle. <laughs> the vulture. The buzzard. The red kite. Isn't that a beautiful bird? I've got another picture of a red kite. Yeah, you saw that coming. The falcon and the kite after their kinds. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk. And there's my favorite hawk, Doc Rivers. You remember Doc Rivers? After their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hopo, and the bat. Don't eat bats. The wood gets in your teeth. 
Verse 19, also every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. Flying insects were inedible, non-edible. Verse 20, you may eat all clean birds, but apparently you shouldn't eat dirty birds. Moses already told you not to eat the falcons back in verse 13, the dirty birds. You get it? You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. No roadkill. I know that will disappoint some of you. Kosher law required that the meat be properly slaughtered and the blood be properly drained. So anything that died of its own, you, you weren't allowed to eat. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates. You know, give it to the stranger that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And this is why you'll never see a kosher Jew eating a cheeseburger. For more on verse 21, see the CD from Exodus chapter 23. We've already taught on that. Verses 22 through 29 rehearse the tithes the Hebrews were required to pay. You shall truly tithe. And and by the way, the word tithe means 10%. You know that. You're to give 10% of all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Notice you tithe your income or your increase, not your total assets. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You see, they brought their tithe to the appointed place of worship, and there they ate a ceremonial meal. And then they would leave the rest of the tithe with the priest. But notice the purpose of tithing. Did Did you catch it here? The purpose of tithing, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. How do you learn to fear the Lord? How do you learn to honor God sincerely and to trust God honestly? By giving a regular 10% of your income to the Lord. That's how you learn. The discipline of tithing brings a sincerity to my devotion. It brings an honesty to my faith. But if I refuse to tithe, any claim to honor God, any boast that I trust God will sound hollow. It'll be empty. You know, how can I say I trust the Lord if I can't trust Him to do more with 90% than I can do with 100%? How can I really say I trust the Lord if I can't give Him a tenth of my income? Fear of the Lord that doesn't cost you 10% of your income is not real respect. It reminds me of a bus driver who used to greet his passengers with the words, pay up or get off the bus. Well, this man became a Christian. He joined the church and they made him an usher. And his enthusiasm for the Lord was contagious. I mean, this guy was some kind of a guy. The pastor, though, had to temper his zeal when it came to collecting the offering because when he passed the plate, he would say to the people, pay up or get off the bus. Hey, certainly you can be a Christian and not tithe. But according to this verse, you can't really learn to fear the Lord. You can't really prove your sincerity, the honesty of your faith, unless you tithe. Verses 24 through 26 explain long-distance tithing. Rather than take the 10% of your crop or your herd All the way to the tabernacle, you could sell it, and you could transport the money. It was easier to carry the money. Verses 27 through 29 explain how that every third year, the tithe went to support the priests, the poor, the orphan, the widows. I mean, just every third year, them giving their tithe, they could take care of all of the needs. And let me be honest with you. If every person who came to our church tithed, we also would have no needs. I guarantee you. It would be more than enough to take care of all of the needs if just everyone, not more than 10%, but if everyone in our church gave 10%, our offerings would probably triple, maybe even quadruple. 
just by tithing. Chapter 15. Isn't that true, James? Yeah, I thought so. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Every seven years, all debts were released. Now, they weren't canceled, but they were suspended for that year to allow the debtor to catch up on his debts. Great idea. Of a foreigner, you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. In other words, if you follow these laws, a tithe for the poor, release debts every seven years, it will eliminate the lower class so that there will be no permanently poor among you. Wow, if we just followed the Lord's commands, what benefit it would bring. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. In other words, the Hebrews could lend to Gentiles, but they couldn't borrow from them. In the Middle Ages, the Pope actually prohibited Christians from lending money. And so the Jews were the ones who picked up the slack and became Europe's chief bankers and financiers. To this day, you'll find that all of the world's leading brokerage firms were founded by Jews, if not still owned by Jews. And it's God said that his people would be lenders and not borrowers. Verse 7, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. It was the kindness, it was her generosity that would make Israel great. They used to say that about America. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, Oh, the seventh year, the year of release is in hand. And your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and he sin among you. You shall surely give it to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give it to him. Because of this thing, the Lord your God has blessed you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. You know, you know there may be times when, when we go to give to someone and God says, No, I don't want you to do that right now. But there should never be a time when it's not in our heart to give. When, when our love doesn't want to propel us to give. God may stop us, but we shouldn't be stopped by a hard heart. For the poor will never cease. And Jesus would say this later, for you have the poor with you always. Now, if they're generous, if they give, there will be no permanently poor. It would eliminate the lower class in Israel. But from time to time, people get in trouble. Things happen. There, there will always be poor with you. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide, your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew man, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. Now, there was slavery in Israel, but there really wasn't slavery. Because in the end, everyone received their wages, didn't they? After the seventh year, when you let the slaves free, you made sure you sent them out with abundance, with a portion of the profit that they brought you. You shall remember that you were a slave. The land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. 
Therefore, I command you this thing today. They were slaves, so they should be kind to the slaves. And it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house since he prospers with you. Then you should take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, pin his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your maid servant, you shall do likewise. And he or she would be called a love slave. Or as the New Testament puts it, a bond slave. And you remember, this is what Paul referred, how Paul referred to himself. He was a slave to Jesus, but not out of duty, out of love. He was a willing slave. Paul realized that as a slave of Jesus, he was better off in Jesus' house than he ever could be on his own. And so he was happy to be a slave to Jesus. He was happy that his ear had been pinned to the door. Has your ear been pinned to the door, to Jesus' door? Have you given him your all? Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you have concluded that life with Jesus is better than you could ever gain on your own. I'd rather be a deckhand on the ship that Jesus captains than to skipper my own fleet. Life goes better with Jesus. Well, verse 18 tells us, It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is any defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. In other words, you don't look at the flock and, and pick out the little sickly, diseased lamb that's not going to bring you any money at the market anyway and say, oh yeah, this is the one I'll give to God. God doesn't want your leftovers. He always desires from us our very best. Are you giving God your best tonight? Or are you giving God your leftovers? But you can give the sickly lamb to your friends. He says, you may eat it within your gates, the unclean and the clean person, the Jew or the Gentile alike may eat it, as if it were a gazelle or a deer, which were clean animals. Only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it on the ground like water. You never ate the blood. Well, chapter 16 rehearses the three major Hebrew feasts. The spring feast of Passover and weeks or Pentecost and the fall feast of tabernacles. Verse 1. Observe the month of Abib, which on our calendar would be late March, early April. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. The lamb was to be sacrificed at the tabernacle. And he goes on to how that for seven days you should abstain from any contact with leaven. You should eat unleavened bread for six days and have a holy celebration on the seventh day. Next comes the Feast of Weeks, verse 9. You shall count seven weeks for yourselves. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Now this feast was also called the Feast of Pentecost. The Greek word Pentecost means 50. And it fell on the day after the seven weeks after Passover, or the 50th day after Passover. That's why it was also called Pentecost. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And notice this, you and your son. Look who's invited to the party. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses 
to make his name abide. When we have a party here in the house of God, who should we invite? Oh, well, I only like hanging out with, with my friends. I only like hanging out with people who look like me or who are like who are the same socioeconomic status as I am. That's who I like to hang out with, my kind of people. Who gets invited to the party? In the house of God, in the tabernacle, in the place that God has appointed. The poor come. The widow comes. The orphan comes. Even they even let the priest and the pastors in. The, the slaves celebrate and eat and make merry alongside the you know, the owners, the masters, everyone's included in the party. And that's the way it should be whenever we have a celebration here at Calvary Chapel. Everyone's invited, man. And the day the poor, the day the poor person's not invited, the day the widow or the orphan's not invited, I'm not invited. I don't want to be here. Because this, this is a place for anybody and everybody to come. Everybody's invited to the house of God. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And boy, don't ever forget that we were slaves to sin. Don't ever look down your nose at the alcoholic or the homeless man or the drug dealer or the sex offender. Don't ever look down your nose and think you're better than they are. Except but for the grace of God, there go I. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. For I delivered you. And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Well, finally, he mentions in verses 13 through 15 the Feast of Tabernacles, which was celebrated for seven days at the conclusion of the fall harvest. He says, surely you shall rejoice. Tabernacles was the most lighthearted. It was the most joyous of all the Hebrew feasts. And in verse 16, he sums up the feasts. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. There were other feasts, but what were the three mandatory feasts that required your attendance in Jerusalem? There were three. Feast of Passover, Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. And notice the end of verse 16. This is interesting. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. One day we are all going to appear before the Lord. And you don't want to show up empty-handed. With nothing to offer Him. You see, sin calls for a sacrifice. And to appear before God without a suitable sacrifice is to appear naked and ashamed and empty-handed. Hey, I'm not going to show up before God empty-handed. I'm going to have a sacrifice with me. He's going to be standing by my side. And his name is Jesus. I hope you don't show up empty-handed. You'll be embarrassed. You'll be ashamed. And verse 17 tells us, Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And along with the sacrifice, we're told to bring an offering. Jesus is our sacrifice, but what is your offering? Your tithe, we've talked about that tonight. Your praise, your service, your gratitude. Notice the rule for an offering. Give as you are able. I don't want anybody to leave with a big trip tonight. Man, man. He must be watching what I've been putting in the box. Preaching this sermon. He's, he's looking, he was looking at me tonight when he was talking about that. Hey, hey, I haven't been looking in the box. Just, just let, this, let, let it sit on this right here. Notice the rule for an offering. Give as you are able. You go tonight and you give as you are able. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image. 
near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. And we end up right where we started in chapter 12, don't we? The Canaanites worshipped these fertility idols. And they would set up these groves of trees where they would worship the fertility gods. And they would trim the trees to make them look like male sexual organs. And then within these groves, lewd practices would go on. Prostitution would go on. And so in these groves, in the shade of these groves, shady practices would come down. And God is warning Israel not to allow shady practices to drift into her worship. It's not just that we worship God, but it's that we worship God in the way that he desires to be worshipped. Amen. Father, thank you for your word tonight. So many things we've discussed and covered. Lord, we ask that you help us to remember these truths. We love you, Lord. Be with us as we go. Bless our coming week. Help us, Lord, to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. And help us, Lord, to not drift. Not drift, but to have a mind, to mind these issues, the issues of our heart, to realize the must of it all, to make choices daily, and to always be looking for more, more of you, more of your goodness, more of your grace. We thank you, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And look at the clock.